The Guardian. Hello, I'm Paul McInnes and welcome to the Focus podcast, where this week we are looking at arts funding. In less than a fortnight, the full extent of the government's budget cuts will be laid bare in the comprehensive spending review. The arts was never going to be exempt from the axe, but fears are growing that the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and the bodies it sustains are to be hit hard indeed. This week, Sir Nicholas Sarota, the director of the Tate, took to the comment pages of The Guardian to warn of a blitzkrieg on the arts, which will lead to the greatest crisis in the arts and heritage since government funding began in 1940. That's what he says. We're here today to discuss the cuts and what their consequences might entail. Joining me in the pod, I have Charlotte Higgins, Chief Arts Writer here at The Guardian, Lisa Opie, Chair of East Midlands Media, who in recent years have funded many independent British films, including This Is England, Bunny and the Bull and Skeletons. And on the phone from York, we have Marcus Roma, Artistic Director of the Pilot Theatre and the man behind the Arts Funding Social Network, which you can find at artsfunding.ning.com. Now, Charlotte, I want to turn to you first because you've been covering this story for The Guardian. Where will the cuts hit most, do you think? Well, my fear is that the cuts will hit smaller and more vulnerable arts organisations. If you're the National Theatre, you have the infrastructure and setup to have protected yourself to an extent from the coming cuts. For instance, the National Theatre has a very productive production, as it were, going on at the moment, War Horse. It's made the National Theatre £2.5 million last year it's going to broadway it's going on tour in toronto that will probably make money for the national theater for many years to come and good on them and thank god but if you're a small couple of performance artists in bradford let's say i mean i'm completely inventing this i think you're going to find it much tougher tougher to raise money from individuals which is one of the things that the government wants arts organizations to do and you're going to find it tougher because the organizations around you will be suffering and less able to support you and we're likely to find out uh, the big picture or will we get the gritty detail when the comprehensive spending review comes out the department for culture media and sport will get its budget and so um, that will be the big picture from the 20th of October. And do you think that picture will be, uh, as Sir Nicholas Sarota put it, a blitzkrieg? Well, I think what's clear, unless something absolutely miraculous happens, is that the cut is going to be at least 20%, and I, I would think it could easily be 25 30%. It's my impression that Jeremy Hunt has not... His opening bid in his negotiations with the Treasury, my feeling is, has not been a bid to protect the arts and culture very carefully. I think he's been offering a few sacrificial lambs and I, I think he's not going to be protecting the arts as strongly as, say, you know, the Defence Minister is <laughs> trying to protect defence. That's my uh, feeling. It may not be accurate. I can see you're choosing your words very delicately there. Um, we're going to hear now from Dominic John Gould. He's the Artistic Director of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre on London South Bank. And that's an organisation which receives no public subsidy. I think the cuts are utterly daft and I can't see any economic sense in them or any cultural sense in them or any social sense in them. And it seems to be nothing more than, you know, a group of rather destructive, angry kids running into a playground and seeing something that was rather delicately put together by a previous lot and then just enjoying giving it a good hearty kick. The powerful economic argument that investment in the arts rebounds very well on the country economically and culturally and socially. It just seems to be nothing but a sort of glee-filled pleasure in destruction. The theatre culture that we've created over the last 15 years 
there's every chance that we'll stop being, you know, the cultural beacon that we've become. OK, I'm going to open this out to the panel now. And, and Lisa, I'd like to start with you. The whole country is facing austere times. Uh, the cuts are going to fall everywhere. Why should the arts be spared? The economic benefits that can be driven by investment in the arts, I think, are very, very clear. If you look at EM Media's work over the last eight years, we've invested in film alone over £11 million, but we can actually look at the funding that we have managed to leverage off the back of that investment totals in the region of £170 million of production work employment that maybe wouldn't have happened in the East Midlands if we hadn't invested in it and made it happen in that region. So I think that there are you know, very clear impacts of investing in the arts. I don't think it's just a nice, woolly, fluffy thing to do. Marcus, are you there? I am indeed, yes. Well, I'd like to bring you in here because um, Lisa just made a very eloquent, pragmatic case for the arts. And I'm just wondering if you think that the arts industry as a whole has done enough to persuade politicians of its worth. Well, I've been you know, in discussions with the Arts Council and um, with all the bodies, and we've set up, since setting up the Arts Funding Ning site, we've got sort of nearly a 1,000 members, people who are wanting to share information around what's going on from various sectors. The online hub and the online discussion points now become increasingly more valuable for us as a sector, as a joined-up sector, to actually use that as a lobbying tool. I mean, we know some of the stuff that's come through via the, the Twitter feed and the, the arts funding hashtag that Glasgow Council, £2.9 million was invested in the arts. They were able to demonstrate that £35 million came into the city through tourism and through people visiting the city as a result of that investment. Now, we know the case has been made, but the things that are coming back from the from the minister is saying enough already we know this we've made the point you've done it we know it we know it um, but having said that there's no problem with sort of repeating the argument and actually really making the case that the investment always produces a return and the arts are very good at producing a return not only a financial return but also a cultural and a heritage return as well as the feel-good return and all those things that they provide so it really is a no-brainer because any kind of salami spice cuts have a massive impact on the money that's going to come back into the Treasury if we're talking purely about fiscal terms. Lisa, Marcus is suggesting there that the government are well aware of these arguments. Why do you think they're choosing not to listen to them? Because they can't? I think it sort of harks back to the bigger question. You know, we're facing an immense number of cuts. What do you not cut? You know, it it isn't surprising that the arts should be considered as part of that. Mm -hmm. The critical question is how deep that goes. From a film perspective, there is a sense that they recognise the importance of film within the culture of the UK, both commercially and culturally. But at the same time, the UK Film Council has been... Yes, with quite clearly the understanding that this isn't necessarily uh, a move that will take away all of the funding that the UK Film Council gave out, but the axing of the UK Film Council was more about the means of distributing that funding. I think it was also a decision based around ideology and about reducing the state rather than purely about trying to improve British film. I mean, the Culture Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, is talking a lot about reducing bureaucracy and all these bureaucrats have got to go and these backroom boys and da-da-da. I think this is a very dodgy argument. I mean, I don't think there's a tremendous amount of slack in the arts world. Nicholas Heitner, funny enough, was talking, the director of the National Theatre, was talking yesterday about the incredibly valuable work that the backroom boys can do. He says it offends him to the very soul, in it's fact. Ev- yeah, it offends him to the very soul that bureaucrats should be singled out as evildoers in this. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, Jeremy Hunt is desperately trying to present arts cuts as protecting the front line. But where does the front line stop? Where does it start? I think there's maybe a related issue here. 
that um, public perception of the art needs to come with you as well. So it's one thing convincing the government. But there's a stat here that's been passed to me that there was a, a survey conducted by the Threadneedle Prize for the Visual Arts conducted amongst 2022 British adults and a fifth of them said visual arts should not be given any government funding. Now, has the arts uh, made its case to the communities that it represents? And Marcus, you work in local communities a lot. Do you feel that people appreciate the value of what you're providing? I think do. I think just in terms of that Threadneedle report, that was a very bit of cynical and lazy journalism as part of the BBC, actually, the way they picked up on that report, because actually it really was about a promotion for that particular prize that they were then offering. It allowed everyone to bandwagon jump onto that one particular statistic of a very small sample of people. I mean, looking at the kind of the online stuff at the moment, there are 45, 46,000 signatures on the Save the Arts campaign. So what we're talking about here, there are a vast amounts of people who are you know, getting behind this and understanding the arguments, not only the cultural arguments, but also the fiscal arguments as well, which I think is really, really important. The way the world has changed is, of course, that the digital footprint left by all of us now is always there. And Charlotte, you were there at the RSA conference this year, and you were there when Jeremy Hunt stood up and said that he was going to protect the arts and it was going to be the start of a new golden age. Now, that's, that video is now on our blog. That, those things are now digitally there. They've been said, and we can see and we can actually really look at those things. So the mobilization of people and support and being able to do that now through these networks is is incredibly um, powerful and incredibly potent. And it's up to all of us to make that connected voice. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do here is to say, where is the commonality and where can we join up this thinking? And where can we actually make the effective lobby of saying it isn't as simple as saying, you know, it's hospitals or schools versus the arts. It isn't that. This is around the whole cultural fabric of society. And that's what's under threat. And that's the real big issue for all of us. We've been asking the public, well, at least Guardian users, what they think about the cuts on a series of open threads on the website. And Charlotte, is it fair to say that there's been a a, a body of opinion that diverges somewhat from Marcus's point of view? Yes, I think that's probably true. I mean, there are a number of very sympathetic, constructive and well-informed comments on those threads, but... It can be, as someone who appreciates and welcomes art subsidy, as I'm afraid I do, you know, it can be rather depressing reading some of the comments. And I seem to think that arts funding is subsidising rich people to go to the opera, which I suppose in in some ways it kind of is, but uh, that's only a tiny edge of the picture. So I, I, I just wonder, I wonder if the message has been, or the complexity of the way arts funding informs all our lives has been adequately brought across well one of our commenters is actually a pr consultant to traveling theater companies and she's based in the constituency of culture secretary jeremy hunt himself and this was her take on cuts i think art by its very nature the artists are resourceful people are driven by passion by resilience by the need to create you know nobody ever said making art was easy it's not it's not easy to become an actor whether it's funded or not um it's not easy to paint a picture whether you have funding to do that or or not. It's, it's going to be hard and artists are going to still survive no matter what. So Lisa, we've just heard there um, somebody who, who works in the industry suggesting that there might be positive outcomes from funding cuts and that the people who really want to make art will continue to make art and that sometimes hardship is a, a necessary companion to creativity. Um, what would be your take on that? I mean, I think funding isn't always simply a matter of going, I'm going to write you a big fat cheque. It's not that simple. 
um, support and funding for films you know, production companies can come in a whole broad range of ways. Some of the things that we do will be really small interventions. I'd like be giving somebody £500 to make sure that they can go to a festival. It would be giving them some legal training so that they know how to go and negotiate for some format rights because they're up against a, you know, a really difficult um, competitor to get the rights. All of those things enable them to become successful businesses in their own right. Um, and then they actually go on to make a lot of money in their own right. So, If you don't put any support in or anything in, then you won't get anything back out. And that sort of myth that sits there that, oh, well, we can tap into private financing. You know, we need to encourage people to to donate more into the arts. I just think that won't happen unless you have a successful industry for them to care about. You can't just pull the plug out and then think it's all going to get swapped over. It isn't. It's very interesting. So you're not, for you, philanthropy doesn't necessarily come out of a sense of duty. No, no. I think it, it becomes... It comes out of a sense of, of pride and, and, a, and a want and a need to be involved because you're excited by something. Um, that's what brand association is about. That's why industry gets, you know, associates itself to the arts because it's a powerful brand association for them. But it isn't if it's not successful. Charlotte, you've been talking to a lot of philanthropists of late. Yes, I'm doing a project on philanthropists for G2. I mean, I completely second what Lisa has just said. Every single philanthropist I spoke wants to give not to make sure that the roof of the museum isn't leaking, but to give added value and um, make something great that couldn't otherwise happen happen. They don't want to be replacing government subsidy. Every single one I spoke to is horrified by the coming cuts, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. Marcus? The other thing about philanthropy is I, I agree that, and also coming outside of London, I mean, we're not at the Metropolitan Hub here, we're based up in, in Yorkshire, and of course, you know, it's all very well to say that, that certain things are going to attract it. I just want to run a couple of things by you in the fact that I want to, I want to sort of pitch a couple of ideas to some philanthropists. One's, one's set during the time of the miners' strike, and it's set in the northeast, and it's about, it's about a kid wanting to do something. Now, okay, um, is someone going to fund that, or, else, or would we not have Billy Elliot. The same is true of Enron. I'm going to go to some banks and say, can you just want to support this thing that's going to be really critical of everything that's been happening? And just think about the reality of what philanthropists really want to back. Because otherwise, would some of that, some of the, the work that happens, some of the edgy stuff, some of the things that bites the hand that feeds, which is what the, sometimes the arts do, which is why governments don't like it, because it can be critical, it can hold a mirror up to what they're doing. So what we're going to be in danger of getting is the safe stuff that's going to sell well, that's going to be playing to those audiences, which are not the audiences up in the northeast. They're not the Billy Elliot audiences when it starts off at live theatre. Those are the realities of what we're going to get. So the cultural landscape will shift, and it will become a much more potentially cosy thing, which will not have the work coming through. And certainly those artists coming through and breaking through that are starting their careers and working up and making their, those new voices happen. And Nick can't know when he started off in Manchester. Let's all remember where these people have come from and what has supported those people to get to where they are and to have the careers they have is through that investment at critical moments in their development that has enabled them to become and to be the, the world leaders that they are that people like to then shout about. I agree with everything you've said, Marcus, except I think you're being a bit mean on philanthropists. I mean, I had various preconceptions um, when I set out and spoke to six very wealthy people about funding the arts. But <laughs> they're in it because they, they love it. They're in it because they're interested and very knowledgeable. And actually, I think one finds that they do give money to rather strange and extraordinary things. 
But I don't see the conservatism you're talking about among philanthropists. Well, I'm very happy to meet those philanthropists who you, who you say, because that's one of the things that I, I, I mean, I'm, philanthropy, as we know, is a long-term game in exactly the same way as public investment and subsidy is. It doesn't happen overnight. And for those relationships that we know from America is that someone will make a piece of work it may be on the second or third piece of work that they've made and come and seen that you then start to develop the relationship further. This is a long-term game, which actually we're going to have to start trying to do that now when the axe has fallen. And that's the difficult thing. It's not going to suddenly pick up the slack. And there are people out there who will want to support some of the, you know, the grassroots projects. But I do worry about some of the people who are more likely to get cold feet because of the content of something or the way it has to be pitched in order to get the money might dilute some of the initial intent of the artist. Why do you think they're different from your other audiences, Mark? Why do you think the rich people who might fund the pieces are less able of appreciating difficult work? I don't think I was... I I was hoping that was... Clearly, I wasn't going to to make that point. That wasn't what I was making. If an organisation wants to invest some money in something, they want to know what return they're going to get and who might be coming to see that and also what what their name is associated with. We all have to jump through hoops. And what I'm saying is... Does the initial integrity still maintain or are there some corners knocked off to allow the people who are funding that to feel happier and safer? Very interesting. Very feisty and very interesting. It's it's quite interesting, I think, how even in this discussion when we're talking to people who are very passionate about the arts, we've all managed to slip into the the language of of economics and profit and loss. And, uh, you know, the arts is surely a case where there is a a totally intangible benefit that um, that we get from the arts in this country. Art civilises and that for people who can't afford it to have access to it and it to be part of our lives is an important thing that you can't put a figure on. Do you think, Lisa, that that case is being made, that, that the importance of the arts to our society I think it's a difficult thing to articulate. That's that's the problem, isn't it? To a certain extent, it's easier in film because we can genuinely point to investments that happen that wouldn't have happened. We can genuinely point to people like Shane Meadows and Paddy Considine and say, you know, that's that's the result. There, you you can see that journey and plot it along the route. And I absolutely think that you know when you when you get down to the profit and loss issue that is an important one you know if we can create a culture where your creative industries are strong and and profitable i think that's great there is an argument to say that the arts needs to be connected to its audiences and give its audiences what it wants also understanding that sometimes they may not know what they want and you're there to surprise them and that might need support to enable you to do that um if you look at the television landscape a very very commercial world are there still tv programs that surprise that engage that shock absolutely there are Um, it doesn't all disappear i don't think but that said to answer your original question i think it, it is difficult to articulate and measure the cultural value of arts on a very local level we might be coming to the end of our time now in this week's podcast but by way of one final question marcus i'm just wondering for those arts organizations well all arts organizations what can they be doing to prepare for the cuts what we have to look at is how we can connect and communicate and create an extraordinary program of work because actually what's really important is that we should be putting together an artist should be putting together now an extraordinarily exciting and innovative program of work that they want to do that will get the funding and they should be talking to and having networks and relationships with those organizations it's no good thinking i want to get the money because i need to keep my building going xyz it's actually what are you going to do what are the relationships you're going to have and how are we going to address the problems and possibilities that we've got coming up. We have to be innovative. We have to look for new models. We have to look for new ways of delivering work. We have to look at new ways of connecting, communicating with our audiences. There are lots of opportunities out there for artists 
to be able to utilize the technologies and to utilize the new landscape. And I think it's an important time for artists to be brave and to be bold. There isn't a time now to sit back and to go, well, it wasn't like it used to be because it isn't ever going to be like it used to be. It has to be different. It has to be changed. And therefore, we have to be forward thinking. So I think artists have a duty to respond in a way about producing the best and the highest quality work, of course, they possibly can, and to make some new relationships and some new ways of delivering that. Almost sounds like necessity being the mother of invention. That's it for this week's Focus podcast. Thanks to Charlotte Higgins, Lisa Opie and Marcus Romer for joining me today. Next week, Rosie Swash will be asking why we now have record levels of sexually transmitted infections in teenagers. I'm Paul McInnes and the producer was Ben Walker. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.